drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Well, hello there, and welcome to Drive-By Cinema Season 3, Episode 13, with my friend and co-host, Paul. <laughs> with the entity, Paul, yes. Uh, and with my co-host, Richard. Very nice to be here again. Hello. Hello. It's the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to. Never has that been more appropriate than for this movie. <laughs> you don't have to. You really don't have to. Unless, of course, you want to, which some of you may do. But you probably won't, in this case. But it's too soon to be criticising the movie. Paul, do we have any corrections and omissions? <laughs> or anything else we need to talk about? It's just been Halloween. Oh, do you know, Halloween just flew by me on a broomstick this year. I've missed it completely. Oh, really didn't go out trick-or-treating dressed well, up? Usually yes. I go around Blackpool uh, looking at the really rather extravagant kind of Halloween decorations. But I didn't do it this time. Yeah, how about you, Rich? What do you do? Do you go out? Do you dress up as a, either an orange-clad, orange-cloth-clad prisoner? Did you dress up as something from the Harry Potter multiverse? Did you did you dress up as something witty? There's some witty stuff going around, like office horrors this year, isn't there? Where people are actually just like normal but horrible personalities that you meet in the office kind of thing. No, this weekend for me was a weekend of QED. It was. Once annual, but now less frequently in the annual because of COVID. Yeah, so Rich, how did it all go at QED? Well, it was exhausting. Was it busy? But satisfying. It was very busy. About 500 people in packed into one room. Do you, did you... Well, you have the big conference room. Did you have, like, the Tories that do, like, those little sort of... Uh, those little sub-meetings. Break Breakout rooms. rooms. We did, yeah. Indeed, I hosted a panel about human rights in one of them. Did one you? Them. I did. Now, Richard has hosted stuff before at QED. He's hosted uh, cryptobiology, is that right? Cryptozoology. Cryptozoology, yes. not just plants and animals, just animals. Okay. Uh, and amazingly, uh, there's a new channel up on t- TV. I don't know what it's called. Beast or something? No, it's called something. And uh, it's just full of crypto zoology, Richard. You'd be interested to find out. Sorry, tell me about this beast, though. Is that a real cryptid program? Uh, I have found the name of a TV channel. It's called Blaze, and there's also Blaze Plus One. Okay, Blaze. Okay, and it's full of cryptozoology. I watched two, three, four, five, six hours on Sasquatch, or I guess the American Bigfoot. Uh, I watched three or four hours on UK Big Cats. Okay. Oh, yeah, they're getting more popular again, aren't they? Yeah. I still remember saying when I did my panel, not my panel, it wasn't really my panel, when I hosted a panel on cryptozoology, there's a couple of different types of cryptid out there. One of them is sort of the supernatural being. Yeah. The other is often thought to be a sort of extinct being that's still hanging around. And then the third is just an animal that's perfectly ordinary, but seems to be in the wrong, wrong place. place. Yeah. And that seems to be to be the least impressive of all of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm used to watching Sasquatch, or whatever he's called, uh, or Bigfoot, play the play the saxophone yeah. on YouTube and stuff like that. Uh, and also sell men's shaving products that don't contain sort of hormone-altering nitrates or whatever. 
I don't know what he's doing but with that. Oh, he's a hairy guy, isn't he? Okay. That was incredible. I, you've got to go on Blaze and see what you think about it, Richard, okay, from a skeptic's perspective. Because uh, they had actually, because I was thinking, why not just, you know, you say he's following you, you know, as a family of four Sasquatches, you know, why not just turn on the heat camera? And he turns on the heat camera at the end. Okay. My feeling about that one is, is, is that he's got a friend who's faking it all. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Potentially, it could be gorillas or chimpanzees escaped from a zoo. You know, the woodland in that part of America is quite similar, I think, in terms of vegetation, but maybe not foodstuffs to, you know, their their habitats. In oh, they'll eat anything, won't they? Yeah. They're clever, aren't they, primates? That's the thing. And chimps make tools, don't they? They put they get ants out of anthills on sticks and lick them off like but he's, I mean, his biggest proof he's you know because he had an italian professor with him you know not sure what he was a professor in but the biggest proof to himself and to to his compatriot that uh the bigfoot was around was that there were there were uh branch breaks about 10 foot up in the air so you know mm-hmm. sort of branches would be broken he said look i just couldn't possibly break this with my own strength yeah, but a falling tree could, you know. So, uh, so yeah, that was all strange. And then, of course, the big cat stuff. You know, I am convinced maybe at that point in the 70s that maybe some were released instead of being surrendered to zoos and safari parks at the point where... It was the early 1970s or the late 1960s where uh, it was difficult to keep a big cat privately in the UK, whereas before it had been very easy. So, you know, maybe one or two did escape them, but I find it very unlikely that they formed a large breeding community without anybody noticing yeah and then we saw the photos and actually i looked at the size of the scottish wildcat and uh, they're, they're almost as big as a lynx actually although they look like a domestic cat they're actually about twice the size of a domestic cat the scottish wildcat and so i mean it's it's possible you know we have scottish wildcat populations maybe further south potentially yeah. Yeah, so I, I find it all rather unconvincing. But what I find most inc- unconvincing is the idea that it could be what the large ones called jaguars, jaguars, leopards, leopards. I think leopards. Because I thought leopards, jaguars, and pumas were all the same thing, but they're not. That's racist. No, I mean they're all panthera, but so a lion. They're all the genus panthera, but so a lion and tiger. What the character in Thundercats? <laughs> So they're all genus panthera, but then so a lion and tiger. I thought like jaguar, puma, and uh, the other one that I can't remember, leopard, were particularly close to each other, but they're not. They just look similar in terms of spottiness. All of that was my weekend, anyway. I don't know why you don't come to QED. You clearly, clearly, be right. I was working, you know, and I cancel work for a, for a do we had about two weeks ago, Richard. So I couldn't cancel again, could I? Oh, fair enough. And then after QED, I had. Decided rather ill-advisedly to book a, a movie outing. To watch what? Well, I went to see the 40th anniversary screening of John Carpenter's The Thing. Whoa! And it was a sort of a restored, remastered copy. Whoa! It's a really excellent film. Truly oh. excellent. 1970 what? No, it's 1982, I think. Oh, oh, a little bit later than the movie that we're going to watch tonight, then. Which a little bit. Seem little to bit. think was a classic. It, you, so maybe we could review the thing in a couple of weeks' time if I get around to watching it. it it's also it's being re reshown at a film festival in Manchester called Grimfest, <laughs> which is I presume better than it sounds. Uh, and the interesting thing about the showing is afterwards they had a little sort of Q and A with two guys, a, a British movie director who directs hol- um, horror movies, yeah. and 
a guy from um, a university, an academic who studies like movies. So uh, they had a chat, and it was interesting, and we had a few, few back and forths. It was, just, it was rather like listening to us, really, for half an hour. Uh, but I was very, very tired at the end of that entire weekend, so I may have fallen asleep slightly during the thing, which you might think is surprising, but still a great <laughs> film. Non- still a great film, nonetheless. So, 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 Richard, we, what you didn't talk about is the panel that you hosted this year. Sorry, I, I digressed away to cryptozoology, and that's not what you talked about this year. This year, you talked about human rights. I did, and it was very timely, very topical, because. Unfortunately, one of the detention centres has just been torched with someone taking a petrol bomb. Yeah, that was crazy, wasn't it? And it seems that it seems that actually the detention, detention centres generally have not been upkempt or whatever. Yeah, it may, may well have been an improvement on the circumstances. Running to running to you know disarray on purpose, accidentally on purpose, kind of. I actually had to restrain myself from running off into an open borders rant during the human rights panel. <laughs> but we had with us... Not that Richard has ever done that ever, ever before. We had with us on the panel, one of my expert panellists was uh-huh. a lawyer from London called Kez, who is representing some of the people who they're trying to deport to Rwanda. Uh, I think how many people are they deporting? Well... I mean, hopefully none, right? But I mean, yep. they had a handful, didn't they, on the plane at one stage before they got removed uh, because it, it was stopped because it's a breach of human rights, blatantly, which is really mm-hmm. one of the things we pointed out during the uh, the panel. You don't seem convinced, Paul. You have to look no, I, I, I don't know enough about it, to be honest with you. I'm just hoping you're going to continue talking. You can't simply send people to where you bid them go, can you? It's not appropriate. And it's the stuff of authoritarian regimes so it's why the human rights <laughs> human rights acts exist <laughs> well I think her argument we see at this point you see I've, I've, I've got her argument you were talking about Suella Braverman or Pretty Patel her argument would be well we're not sending them back to where they came from so I think I think her argument it's, would be how is that better <laughs> well I don't know I, I don't know but I, I think her argument would be yes they have human rights uh, but those rights are not absolute like what that came up in that? What was that court case we were watching just recently? Daryl, Daryl Brooks. Yeah, Daryl Brooks. Apart from that, he doesn't know what he is. He is saying is uh, generally you were saying like you know what a mess he made of his own defence. Well, yeah, but I think strategically it did have an effect. That judge was really, really exhausted by the end. You know what I mean? Tactically, of course, he didn't know what any of his objections meant, but. I don't know what he was trying to do. The judge was exhausted, but the jury convicted him all 70-odd yeah. yeah. counts. Well, the judge so. hated him, and the jury hated him. So, But I, I think he's, I, I think ultimately it was a narcissistic victory he was looking for. He was looking for more attention, wasn't he? In that sense, he succeeded. But in any case, I mean, he was saying, what was he saying? There was, there was some point where he was ejected to another courtroom, yeah? That's true. And uh, he stopped talking, and uh, it was obvious that he could hear, but he claimed that he couldn't hear through the headphones and she asked him do you want to come back in or something or do you want to the judge asked him do you want to come back in or do you want to do you want to oh do you want to uh, cross examine or something and she asked him three times over you know repeated repeated time time lapses and time gaps and he didn't answer so she, her idea was he forfeited his amendment right to cross examination you see and this is the point he does have a right to demand to cross-examine, but he doesn't have an absolute right to demand it at any time. And so, I mean, the only argument I can put forward to try to defend her position is to say, yeah, they do have human rights and they are inalienable, 
uh, and they're absolute human rights, but they're not absolutely afforded. And that's a rather technical distinction. The human right item or article that pertains to this is the right to a fair trial. And he got a fair trial because the court in that case bent over backwards to accommodate his his vexatiousness. Well, there's an amendment right, which I I, I suppose to be inalienable uh, and absolute in, the, in America. But the point is they don't need to be absolutely provided. America, of course, is not a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights because they invented their own Bill of Rights, didn't they? They invented human rights and gave us the bill. <laughs> and the Declaration of Independence, meanwhile, holds it to be self-evident that, you know, all, all people are blah, 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 blah. Except, in that instance, all people meant everyone except the Native American Indians who are already living there, who didn't seem to have the same kind of rights. But like, the essential thing, to get really serious about the Human Rights Act as enacted by the Europeans in the ECHR is that it applies to all humans. And it doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter whether you're coming in a boat from Albania mm. or you are Jacob Rees-Mogg or Preeti Patel. The rights are afforded to everyone equally. And you can't... I mean, they're talking about a British Bill of Rights, which is horribly dangerous, and the, the rights they're removing are terrifying, especially considering they're also banning protest, so you can't even protest about these things as well at the same time. <laughs> but well, the we idea know of a... that. I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you can't even say, what, what couldn't we say during the funeral? You couldn't say, oh, down with the monarchy during the you funeral. You could criticise Prince Andrew, yeah, or criticise the monarchy. It seems, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea of a British Bill of Rights seems to suggest that there are rights which only pertain to British people. And how are we going to prove that, eh? You know, is that how long we've stayed here? Simply our passport? Is Boris Johnson British? He was born in America? I don't know. This is where this is where the Nazis got off, wasn't it? He he's no longer American because he had to pay obviously dual taxes and Oh, so he stopped. Oh yeah, that would that would end his dual nationality right away, wouldn't it? Because America, you know, America is very famous about the fact even if you're not living there and you haven't been being there, you're still going to yeah. pay taxes once you earn that. Money. I think they're unique. They as will a chase it down. Yeah, they're unique in requiring citizens everywhere to submit tax returns. I mean, China's pretty unique in that they won't let you have dual nationality. Right. So. Some places, some places will force you to renounce any oaths that you've made, and some places won't take you if you have made an oath. Not everyone requires you to. Swear an oath, I suppose. I mean, like as a British citizen, I've never sworn an oath. Although my passport does seem to be handwritten by the Crown, doesn't <laughs> it? It does say at the beginning of it, her her Britannic, well, it'd be His Britannic Majesty demands, oh, yeah. etc. Are we supposed to cross that out and write it in Crayola ourselves? Change I think the, so. Yeah, pull out the gender. straight away. Yeah. So, yeah, you're supposed to put a moustache on the Queen on all your notes as well. Did you know that? So, so, by the so way. yeah, I, I think Rwanda is a particularly Strange choice, isn't it, to send people to? Mm. You can't simultaneously compl- claim that there's nothing wrong with Rwanda. Why wouldn't people want to go to Rwanda? It's a perfectly <laughs> decent place to go. And at the same time claim that you're doing it as a deterrent. The two, Those two facts cut across one another completely, don't they? <laughs> no, you're right, yeah. But, I mean, I guess they're not, they're, not, they're not saying those things to the same audience, are they? The nature of sound bites and the professional... Where the messages are disseminated these days in the political class means that those contradictions never have to be faced, do they? But you and I, our, our human rights are very unlikely to be threatened in a meaningful way, are they, generally speaking? 
Well, I don't know if I can't say down with the moniker. I mean, this is the point. I, I, there is all this, but then there's this idea that... Uh, how do I express this in modern society? Is that this idea that we shouldn't be offensive is, is a double-edged sword, I think, you know. Uh, because, you know, generally offensive to people. But what about the monarchy? I mean, 45% of the UK don't want the monarchy... Is it's is it's not his presence equally offensive to the forty five percent that don't want it? Why? I don't why, know. I mean, Paul, come back when why, it's fifty two forty eight. I don't know. Oh, really? <laughs> exactly. You know why? Why are we not arresting you know people who trips around London in big horse drawn carriages for being offensive? I I don't understand how fifty five is you know fifty five percent makes it. Oh, I just don't understand really. It, it's beyond me how how these things are fudged to each situation. You know, like. It's all baffling and perplexing, but let's move on, Paul. Because, funnily enough, there is a semi-royal wedding happening in the movie we're going to review, isn't there? (laughs) Which is a cue for the music. The movie is called Sex Sextet. From 1970. God, Eight? it's been 78, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I did take notes, but I've lost them since. It's been yeah, a so while. bear in mind when we're talking about this movie, and if you should expose yourself to it visually, <laughs> this movie came out one year after Star Wars. <laughs> so it's now 44 years old. Not as old as its lead actress. Sextet, it means set of six, doesn't it? Ah, well, it's a play on words also. It's a double entendre, isn't it, quite evidently. And the lead actress... We're treated to a whole whole flurry of double entendres in this movie. Lead actress is Mae West. Yes, the incomparable Mae West. Well, you say incomparable. Hollywood. I know she's a Hollywood legend. Have you ever seen a Hollywood, a golden era Hollywood movie that Mae West was in? Could you name one without looking at IMDb? I have seen one actually, but I forgot right. what it's called. It, it's with W W C F W Grace. What's he called? W. Oh. I don't think she did very many movies. She well, she only started when she was about forty. Thirties, yeah, in the thirties, yeah, which is about forty. She started making movies. Yeah, yeah so that's right. I suppose the movie industry wasn't around when she was a young lady. <laughs> Because but wait a minute, May she West saved born. She saved Paramount Pictures with her first movie. Did she? Yeah, Paramount Pictures was like it was it. You know, they'd been to the pawnbroker basically, and they had no money left. And May made a first movie. It was a smash hit. To this day, they've still got like a, a whole building named after her because of that. The fact she saved the whole the whole the whole movie studio. Well, I mean, I guess in that era, her. Double entendres must have been come across as sh- shockingly salacious and well yeah. more than that. I mean, she was she was on the list of banned movie stars. Well, no yeah. wonder she didn't make very many then. And it it wasn't just it wasn't just the formal apparatus of Hollywood uh, self censorship. You know, the, the I forgot what the name of the group was called. Okay, that went around making movies more moral and, and, and more family valued. There was just huge amounts of hounding in the press from reviewers, you know, big names in Hollywood just 
hitting down on her and other people too. And I was surprised by some of the people that were included in that hit list. Fred Astaire was seen as a dangerous, <laughs> a dangerous, a dangerous subversive element in, in, in movie, Movieland, yeah. Ronald Reagan, of course, was on the list for a time, wasn't he? But that was later during the McCarthy era. But this, we're talking here in post-prohibition or mid-prohibition or later, you know, this, this sudden moral rectitude in inverted commas, that afflicted the nation. Yeah, I mean, she was hit with this. But, of course, I mean, her stage shows have been banned and she'd been taken to court and thrown in jail previously for the work that she did on on, on, on Broadway. Well, I was going to say, maybe she did more on Broadway than on Hollywood because this was a play before it was a movie. Yeah. Several interesting things to note about this. Uh, it's one of her old plays. I think she'd written uh, herself, and then it was co- yeah, probably it was written re- for a slightly younger woman as a lead. Maybe? Yes, definitely. Uh, and maybe you know, written for somebody that could imbue the lines with a certain amount of fun and vigor and energy. Uh, but it was rewritten and, and jazzed up with the co-writer who was brought on board to this movie, and as a result. Uh, because I mean, at this point she was already what eighty-seven years old, maybe or something like that. Eighty. She's at least eighty-four. Yeah, yeah. At this point, of course, uh, I mean, when you're at that age, you know, you get some old Alzheimer's granny, and she can still play the piano. Yeah, you know, green sleeves or whatever for when she was like a kid. But you ask her to do something new, and she can't do it anymore. And although she knew her original script, having changed it, she couldn't remember it, and that's the reason why she wore an earpiece for the entire movie. No, Paul, that's not the reason. Actually. Ah, you're going to give me the apoc- apocryphal reason, which is not true, Richard. What's but we'll get into reason? this later. Oh, okay. I'll make a note. Earpiece <laughs> reason. Well, you're also, you're already correcting me. This is this is a first. Paul, it seems like you're really energised about this movie, which I, I've got to say I found goppingly awful. <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm energised about Mae West, okay? She's a proto-feminist star. Okay. This is a cult film among certain circles, right, Paul? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what is it that that is most loved about this film? I don't know. What, what do they see in it? It's much loved and much laughed at. You know, I I think it's it's reverently indulged by Mae West fans. You know, but really. What? So, I mean, okay, it, it's difficult to critique this film. Have you without... seen Paul Young sing recently, or Diana Ross sing recently? Okay, I understand. Life. There's a level of and it's indulgence. not really about their singing anymore, okay. is it? It's okay. more about the person they were and what they represent. And I think this movie is similar in that sense. But it's a vain indulgence, isn't it? It's like well, it's you like, could call this you could call this a passion project or a vanity project. Exactly. I'm inclined to call it the latter. You know, I mean, we, I, we rejected one movie for being a vanity project of a septuagenarian filmmaker, <laughs> and then you move on. We're doing an octogenarian film filmmaker. Do you know how much the budget was for this movie? Okay, uh, hold on. We, we can get to that. Look, I just want to say, right, obviously, she's a very old lady when she's making this film, and good on her <laughs> for keeping on doing what she always did. Yeah. Right? I mean, who can criticize? She's not embarrassed by it. She's not embarrassed. But that was Mae West. That was their proto-feminist character. She was going to go out there, use men, love men, live life, and not be ashamed by who she was, or even a New York accent, okay? So that was Mae West. This she was is kind of Mae West herself. is a third-wave feminist icon, is it? Is that yeah. Uh, yeah. But it, it's a bit like the embarrassing auntie at the family party, isn't it? It is! <laughs> yeah. It is, and yeah. She's playing... Yeah. Uh, she, 
She's playing a woman who's getting married for the sixth time. Sixth okay, time. so there's a, lot, there's a lot of jokes about this, including Henry. But it was Henry the Eighth, not Henry the Sixth, wasn't it, or something? So. Yeah, I was going to say I don't think there were a lot of jokes, or maybe there were many attempts at humour. Very few well, of them. There were, were, there were a lot jokes. of one-liners and smutty one-liners. A heck of a lot. Just a ridiculous number. Did you miss those, Richard? You can't miss those. Well, the film asks us to believe that somehow this eighty-four-year-old <laughs> woman. He's about to marry a very young and startled-looking, frankly, Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Timothy Dalton. <laughs> What's his pre-fame? I mean, was he just coming into fame? How did he do the, like you be- know before James Bond? Certainly, I think it's slightly before. It must be before Flash Gordon as well, probably. Isn't wow. it? Wow. Yeah. Or maybe not. So maybe they not. didn't spend the money on Timothy. Okay, I don't know what they spent the money on. I think they spent it on getting May to perform. Can I just tell you what the budget was, Richard, while you make your point? Ten million nineteen seventy-eight dollars. Ten million nineteen seventy-eight dollars. We're talking a budget these days of at least fifty or sixty million. Listen, the director of this film, Mm. Scouse director Ken Hughes. Yes. Responsible for most famous for I don't know, but I read it. I read it on IMDb. Most famous for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So he'd been famous before this. Chitty bang bang, chitty bang bang, I love you. And this film is a musical, right? So it would make sense to get... It is a musical at times, but not often, weirdly. Well, I think the big difference between, say, this and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I don't know whether Sextet... Chitty Chitty Bang Bang has songs. It has catchy songs that even now Does Chitty Chitty Bang Bang have Alice Cooper playing a waiter, singing like Liberace in a piano in the closing credits? I think you say why do people love this movie Richard something like that might be a reason to love this movie in the way that people love the Rocky Horror Show yeah I, I know that there's no other way to utter that sentence than, <laughs> than this movie I recognise that that's a unique circumstance yeah well, it's pretty brilliant I, mean, I, I knew that Alice Cooper was in it and I knew he wasn't going to be garbed you know garbed up as in his kiss outfit but uh I didn't recognise him for an alarmingly long time. Or the music to... that he played, because I mean, no, it wasn't Alice no. Cooper music; it was Liberace music. You know, I, mean. I was trying to figure out, you know, what like uh, was that? Is that Neil Sedaka or no? <laughs> Paul Anker? That? You know, or, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> this starts at the wedding of this character. She's called. Oddly, she's called Marlow Manor. <laughs> she swoops why. into town. She swoops into town, and like she's got so many fans, it's ridiculous. Like another thing about this film, right? I'm sure this was a very challenging film to direct from Ken Hughes's <laughs> point of view. This film is actually shot in two parts. I don't know if you noticed this. There's like the second unit, which was in London, uh-huh. and they film all the outdoors bits in London. I don't believe. I don't think May West set foot on United Kingdom at any oh, stage God, during this thing, film. Yeah. No, you wouldn't want her on, a, on a transatlantic flight, would you? All of the indoor scenes are clearly on a soundstage in Hollywood somewhere. Uh, and most of the movie is indoors in, on the soundstage. But uh, at the very beginning, we do see a wedding at St. Martin's Church in London. It's then followed by <laughs> a procession led by the household cavalry and a black limousine <laughs> through the streets of London to some posh hotel. 
No, there's a bit of singing and dancing is they come on in, you know, they come in with the suitcases that people are whirling around, you know, getting flowers ready, get laying out the spread, you know, blah, 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 blah. But as part of this kind of slightly old fashioned choreographed sort of sing, song and dance section, okay, you know, we've got choreographed dancing, almost like, you know, the synchronized swimming that we'd see. Hooray for Hollywood that, is what they're singing, by the way. Oh, is it hooray for Hollywood? Hooray but for Hollywood. Part of this involves a choreographed dog. Or pair of dogs. And I thought that, you know, that's a sign of a classy movie, you know. They're swooping in with the expensive leather luggage and they bring the dogs in the chorus line too. I loved it. It's not really... I not impressed. Well, it's carried off with minimum aplomb, isn't it? I mean, they just yeah. do... They do a brief <laughs> bellhop choreography number. Yeah. And then that's it. They just... Listen... The other thing about this film is... Oh, yeah, here's another thing. Timothy Dalton is playing, like, an English lord. Gentleman, yeah. A gentleman. If, if anybody watched To the Manor Born, if you remember To the Manor Born with Penelope, Penelope Keith, yeah. uh, it's kind of like that sort of... That kind of English upper class. That kind of caricature of English upper class, isn't it? You know? According to IMDb, Arnold Schwarzenegger turned down the role at Timothy no Dalton. No way! That would have been amazing. Unimaginable. And also much more to Mae West's taste. When she got thrown out of Hollywood, she took her show to Las Vegas and she was the first person to essentially do a Chippendales show. She sang... Does little chipmunks in Disney. No. She sang and then huge, muscled Mr. Olympia got butt naked for the ladies. And it was the first kind of, you know, saucy show for the ladies in the whole of the US. It would be no use to her, would it? Because so she would have preferred Arnold, I think, to to drippy old Timothy. Paul, in this film, Mae West, eighty four, has cataracts so bad <laughs> that I'm she can't she can't see the script <laughs> to read it. That's why she has an earpiece. She under rewrote her the script and was too old to relearn it to begin with. Okay, so and then of course there wasn't time for it to because she's old. Yeah, and and, and she got bad eyes. She can't see. She's got bad eyes. She can't see. No. Paul, okay. If the, in the entirety of this movie, Mae West has only three modes of operation. One, she's walking on the arm of an, of an actor who's helping her, <laughs> like you would help an old lady across the road. Yes. Two, Two she's, she's lying, bed. lying down on her bed. <laughs> or three, in in a couple of shots, and not very many, because she's holding onto a chair or something. She she will walk across a room to a mark, which she only knows is there because she bumps into a chair <laughs> or, or or a table and then stands there stationary. Now she's found her mark. I think Richard is managing to sort of get to the groundswell of this geezer of a movie, you know, why we enjoy it so much. Okay, so you're right. There are, cat- there are cataracts too. She couldn't learn, didn't have time to learn the new script. Okay, three, the walk is correct. But there's still, what I like about she it is walks. there's still, there's she walks still remnants like of the Mae West walk, which was, which was really? just way done. She walks well, like she, she's filled a tenor lady. So. <laughs> <laughs> the old Mae West walk, when she was young, and, and she's still buzzing in this movie, actually, impressively so. Uh, but there's a huge amount of really unapologetic plastic surgery on show here that she obviously just doesn't care about, fair play to her. But the old Mae West walk, you know, back in the days, was, you know, uh, a Western saloon walk. It was called, you know, because her hips would swagger side, sway side to side, but the top half would be walking like a fighting man kind of thing. And you can see she's trying to, you know, it's in her muscle memory, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't sort of stumble through. 
into, you know, the shaky limbs of an old lady. So let's get on to the earpiece, Richard, because I think before we dissect the the complex plot, okay, okay. I think we need to talk about that earpiece. So what did you hear the earpiece was for? Earpiece was for? But she couldn't learn the script because she can't read because she's got yeah. cataracts. Consequently, she, they had to... They had to recite each line into her ear. Yeah, it was done Brazilian soap style, soap style, soap style. So you know, she was read the lines and then she had to act them. So often you'll she'll start each line with O. <laughs> I counted the number of O's and it's just O. Uh, she says O a lot, yeah, and it's kind of like a shaky O. The other reason she was given the earpiece was uh, they finished shooting in a lift and went home, and she got stuck in the lift overnight. Because they didn't have the earpiece at that time. So it's not that she couldn't read the lines. It's she was too deaf to hear these, you know, the director's calls on set. Yeah. <laughs> and she got stuck in the lift because he said, right, get out of the lift now. She didn't hear. She, she got stuck in the lift overnight. So for, there's two reasons why they thought an earpiece obviously was a good idea for her. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, my God. So you're right, actually. You're, you're not giving the apocryphal reason. Okay. But there are two good reasons why she wore the, the What is the apocryphal reason? I forget, but it's kind of like... I don't know. It's, it's a variation on the same two things. Isn't there a story that she starts reciting the lines from, like, you know, a, a police radio or something? Is there That's a spinal it. tap moment? That's it, yes. <laughs> That's it, okay. It's something about the police radio, uh, which apparently is not true, although... The guy, Ken Hughes, to say she did receive the police radio in her ear at times, but they managed to work around it. So, so. No, listen, the Sussex Court Hotel not yeah. only is hosting Marlowe Manor's wedding, marriage to the English gentleman played by Timothy Dalton, it's also listen hosting like Dalton. an international conference. Of yeah, world like, leaders. It's like the accumulation of OPEC uh, and uh, Spectre. And like the UN, all together in one. It's amazing. All the major players in the world are there. And guess what? Guess Many what? of them are, are her, her former husbands. Husbands or boyfriends. It's incredible. Like, she's had everybody in there. We're led to believe that through her bedroom shenanigans, she has influenced and manipulated world leaders through the On years. behalf of the CIA, yeah. Well, you know, through the since the 1890s when she was born, <laughs> in the Victorian era where Mae West apparently was born. <laughs> Strange thing about the Sussex Court Hotel is the outside looks like a London hotel. The inside looks like the set of Carry On Cruising. <laughs> no more so than when the American, apart from the Conference of World Leaders and <laughs> Marlowe Manor's marriage. There's also the entire American, American athletic team. It was only 24 men. They Weird. turn up almost exclusively to use the gym in the hotel for the entire yeah. film. That was a MacGuffin that just just centres around them, isn't it? Which is her cassette tape. Her pink cassette tape. Fucking baffling, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So apparently Marilyn Man is in the habit of recording a diary in the form of a cassette tape as all. Yeah. I think I did that as a seven-year-old in 1970, whatever, you know. But that's a seven-year-old. I don't know why he wouldn't use a dictaphone. Well, I mean, she can't write because she's got massive cataracts. <laughs> so I guess it's out of necessity. Presumably it's day-glow pink for that reason. But she records it's this. It's very unintentionally apparently. Barbara Cartland, this isn't it? You know, it is, is isn't it? It is, yeah. it is Barbara yeah. Cartland. Yeah, so this becomes very important, this tape, because apparently there's one C90 
has got important <laughs> secrets about her previous marriages and consequently about... To bring down the entire world. It's basically the uh, Edward Snowden tapes, isn't it? In, it is, In yeah. cassette tape format. The Edward yeah. Snowden leaks, letters, emails, whatever they were called. <laughs> we find out her assistant, who's like this very yappy, snappy kind of... I was played by Don DeLuise, who's probably yeah. the only actor comfortable in this entire movie. Yeah. It, it, this movie is yeah. campy enough that he fits right in. He fits right in, yeah. He kind of shines, actually, in comparison, doesn't he? He does. Absolutely everyone else in this movie, it seems like they're doing the end-of-term pantomime. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to some of the big names that are doing that pantomime. But, you know, he's he's an actor, and uh, although he's a little bit hammy and a little bit showy, okay, he, I mean, he fits to a musical, uh, you know, a musical role, doesn't he? Uh, and he's kind of snappy and snappy and, and all that kind of zappy Hollywood kind of uh, go-getter. And so it, it turns out that he's her runner or controller. Or is Assistant, he? I don't know. I guess. Yeah, but is he actually a secret agent? Secret agent? agent. Well, oh God. No. We don't know. There's a weird he knows part, about the though. tape, doesn't he? And he says, look, we need to get rid of that tape, darling. Or does somebody turn up in a, in a hotel room and say, look, we need to get rid of the tape? I can't remember. There's an odd thing about this wedding at the beginning when they arrive at the hotel. Because at some point, there's like a commentator who turns, with holding a microphone, speaking to camera. So obviously they're televising this marriage, but also the honeymoon, right? <laughs> oh, there's, there's several moments, isn't there, where, yeah. Where they where give Timothy a play-by-play play, play by play of how the honeymoon is going. And yeah, that's such right. an international star, yeah. yeah. Timothy gets interviewed on television several times about how it's going. And, and you know, comes across as being gay, you see. Yeah, because he was helping That's a big the, joke. Because he was helping the athletes in the gym, uh, you know, he was... I can't remember what, what, what innuendo they come up with. It's funny. I've probably written it down somewhere later. But yeah, so this whole thing is being uh, televised for some reason. Um, now, about <laughs> now, we get one of these weird cameos. The, the one I'm thinking of is Ringo Starr playing, <laughs> I think, one of her exes. Yeah, as, a, Balkan, think, a Balkan fella. Or something, is he or a Balkan? Fella. Something oh, well, like that. He, he, he starts out with an accent. There's a funny that accent. Will, oh, that accent that well, I described charitably as European. Oh. He's okay. called Laszlo, but he drops the accent fairly soon, doesn't he, and becomes his standard Scouse brogue. Standard yes. Thomas the Tank Engines. <laughs> Thomas the Tank Engines. <laughs> Depressive. That's, uh, that's I have no idea why he turns up, because he doesn't advance the plot in any meaningful way, other than you know that she was once married to a film director. Um, but it seems that she works for Uncle Sam. She's a spy or a diplomat or something. Yeah. Now, somebody comes in and says, look, you've got to lose that tape. But I don't know who it was. Was it her assistant or was it somebody else? Was it her, like, runner or controller? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, what, why would she have to lose the tape? Because it's got all of her exes on. But he, Surely he everybody takes knows it, who their exes are. But he takes it downstairs into the kitchen there preparing the wedding food or maybe the back, the conference banquet food. And she puts... Uh, he, or, he or she, whoever's getting rid of it, puts it in... A cake? Yeah. It winds up in a cake. Yeah. How does it wind up in the cake? He throws it in the oven to get rid of it, you see, with the idea of melting it, but it doesn't land in the oven, it lands in the cake in the oven. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, then we we segue very quickly to a slightly xenophobic and racist... You know you say segue? Isn't that a segue? Yes. Sorry. Segway. Don't apologise. It's a weird word. I don't know why it's called Segway. I don't know why it isn't Segue. And I don't know why Segways, the stand-on portable transport mechanism, are called Segways and not Segues. 
It's a cliffhanger, isn't it? Uh, so, so uh, look, I mean, then we get this weird segue into, like, you know, uh, pots and pans banging kind of semi-musical expression of international cooking, yeah, because they're cooking for the conference, yeah. All these different cooks... There's an, it, like heading the truck saying, I can't stand these bloody foreigners kind of thing. And then, uh, then their international food is presented to the conference. And uh, I think it's a Jimmy Carter impression, impressionist. He does a really good job. He says, look, let's not argue. Let's eat each other's food. And they eat each other's food and they're vomiting and physically sick because of it. And this apparently is very funny. Multiculturalism at its finest. Tony Curtis is playing... The Russian yes. diplomat, who he was is. also an, a lover of Marlowe Manners. Mm. Uh, the name's unbelievable. And he is... <laughs> he's desperate to get back, back. with Marlowe for a night of passion for some reason. Just, uh, well, actually, just to spend 30 minutes in a company, which they do on the balcony, spotted by her new bridegroom. Oh, I found the innuendo that led the TV commentators to conclude that Timothy Dalton was gay. He said, we all pulled together at Eton. Obviously talking about rowing, yeah. Uh, well, it's it's true anyway. Debatable, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the case, maybe. Milky biscuits and whatnot. Yeah, so uh, she's up there, right? Is this the point where Timothy Dalton actually does a singing number? There's a point where he sings with... I didn't, I didn't remember that. I've, I've managed to blank, blank it out of my yeah. memory. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he's screaming up saying, what are you doing with that other fella up there? And she throws the tape, which is recently recovered from the cake, out and it lands in the mouth of, of a, a gargoyle. gargoyle lion. lion. Yeah. Oh, a lion, it's in the mouth of No, a lion. no, it doesn't. It lands on the trampoline in the gym and then they bounce it up into the gargoyle lion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's and right. that, that May actually comes 84 years old down to the gym and tries to clamber onto the trampoline to get it while somebody's having a bounce on there. Not with her. <laughs> not with her. Obviously, not <laughs> and she doesn't get it, and that's when it bounces up. There. The the one thing that absolutely never happens in this film is nobody ever has sex with Mae West. No. I mean, clearly, obviously, I couldn't help but here, admire ample breastage, though. I mean, it, it, it did look good for her age. Oh well, okay. But then silk dressing girls do that for you, don't they? If you're busty, if you're busty, you know. When your dress designer is Keith Moon. Uh, <laughs> That's what the, I forgot to mention. Yeah. Of the who? What a terrible! I mean, you know, sadly departed, but what a terrible, terrible cameo! Just <laughs> astonishingly bad. The opportunity for May West to show off several different outfits, several different dresses, isn't it? <laughs> basically, whilst whilst Keith Moon camps it up around pretending to be uh, a dress designer. He was vibing. He was vibing that royal photographer. What's he called? Litchfield. Oh yeah. He was yeah. vibing that, I think, you know, in a really bad way, in an awful way. Um, not as culturally insensitive as the casual racism of the Chinaman in the kitchen, where I think he gets shouted at for something, doesn't he? I think he does, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's horrific amounts of xenophobia going on around the food, yeah, okay, in the kitchen. So, But yeah, I think the English head chef with a beard does shout at the Chinaman for those reasons, yeah. So, uh, so this MacGuffin bounces all over the place. This print cassette tape. She throws it off a balcony. It gets stuck in a cake. It bounces on a trampoline. It bounces up to a gargoyle lion, and then people try to retrieve it. Okay, her assistant tries to retrieve it, and somebody else tries to retrieve it at the same time. And I can't remember who it is. The suspense, the tension of this film, 
that, that nobody ever cares about. <laughs> <laughs> More interesting, I think, is the expensive glass grand piano that they hired for this film. Whoa. Which is in lots and lots of the shots because they realised that they needed to use it as often as possible once they'd hired it. At one point, Don DeLuise dances on the fucking thing, which... Wow. You know, I, I it was glass. I didn't realise that. Do you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of John Lennon, Yoko Ono in his popular, like, isn't John Great period, like Imagine and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I get the same feeling about this as I get about John Lennon's music from that era, which is... What, yeah. self-indulgent? Self-indulgent and Senile. lots of white furnishings <laughs> to just, I don't know. I mean, Lanyots were big at the time. This is a Lanyot of a movie, isn't it? You know. In 69, I cocked the entire crew, says Timothy Dalton <laughs> to the TV reporter. <laughs> oh, dear. Like, I, I think the carry-on team could have made these jokes work. It, it, this should have been a carry-on film. You're quite right. Mm. As a carry-on film, this should have possibly stole the show. Then George Hamilton arrives as Vance the gangster, who it turns Thank out. Thank you. That was just a weird. That was just such a weird addition to the plot, wasn't it? Who is it? Sorry, it turns it's out it's George it? Hamilton. George Hamilton. Right. Apparently, this tape ca- contains a key piece of information that Vance the gangster needs to know. He thinks he's still married to Mae West. Oh, God, what's all this about? This is really is, annoying, wasn't it? If These, if he's, these if tag he was, on parts, add on parts of the plot. Just... Well, he faked his death, didn't he? Vance faked his death at some point to escape the heat. And he's claiming that if if she had divorced him before that, then they were legally, you know, not married. And he, it was okay that he was she was marrying this English gent. But if he was, if the divorce happened after his vague God, death, yeah. he didn't count for some reason. And <laughs> therefore, he'd have to kill <laughs> Timothy Dalton for trying to marry someone who was currently his wife. Kind of like Rumpelstiltskin or Princess and the Pea. It's kind of like this this fairy tale logic, you know, that just doesn't apply to the real world, you know. Uh, I mean, she could just go and tell the TV reporters who are broadcasting live downstairs in the lobby that he's here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, the fact they didn't call room security, it just, I mean, it's just silly beyond belief, isn't it? Sillier still that all the proof he needs is to hear a cassette tape with Marlo Manor's voice saying that it, that she remembers divorcing him. That, that's fine. Now, yeah. now, 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 who plays it? Does he insist it on being played? He does, doesn't he? Because she says, he takes it into the room full of dignitaries full of the, and says, Look, yes, I'm going to play it. And she goes, no, 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 don't. The world's going to end. Okay. Then, oh my God, he plays it. And apart from it revealing the fact that she's already said she's divorced from him whenever, whenever she said that, okay, uh, she, she play, he plays out her most terrifying memoirs. And it just seems to be her rating the various <laughs> men in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see how the world is going to collapse because of this. Well, she knows what she's doing, Paul. She's an international spy and diplomat. Very pithy one-liners. It turns out that Timothy is actually an international spy, one of the best, one of the biggest, one of the 007s of the British Brigade, yeah? How prophetic. And uh, when he finds out all this nonsense, he hotfoots it off to his yacht in Southampton or Cow's Week. On the Thames, isn't it? I think oh, it's, it's on the Thames. Thames. Okay. I don't, Paul, I don't less, think they would have stretched to another another location. <laughs> like 10 million pounds. I mean, all they've done is paid 
Ringgold Star, half a million pounds to turn up to a movie that he can't act in. And Alice Cooper and Keith Moon. They must have paid a lot of money. Alice Cooper now turns up, sits down at the glass piano, <laughs> sings an extraordinary number. <laughs> I think at this point it's gone it's gone completely wibbly wobbly, hasn't it? I quite enjoy how it's like Christmas pantomime, you're right. It's like, you know, it just goes silly at the end. Marlowe Manners joins her new husband on his boat. They say the lines, the British are coming. There's a cannon shot, like a gun salute, and the Union Jack gets hoisted up the flagpole <laughs> in, I guess that's the closest we're going to get to a sex scene with the octogenarian Mae West. But there we are. Finally, Timothy gets his end away. Really, this whole film was about him having blue balls, wasn't it? Because blue blood and blue balls, because she was too busy to consummate her new marriage. So how horrified were you the idea that an 84-year-old should be you know, bedding a young whippersnapper like Timothy. No, look, that's fine. You know, age oh. is just a number. If everyone is consenting and into it... I agree. No problem with that at all. Just clearly, Timothy Dalton was there under duress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was basically blinking a duress code during the entire movie. It just feels unseemly to watch it. That's the problem, isn't it? We don't need to see it. We don't need to see... May West lasciviously chatting up men with <laughs> with one-liners, which would have been risque in 1950. I mean, when she was on like the Ed Sullivan show, she got banned in the 50s. Okay, surely, yeah, yeah. Because uh, like there was one, one particular line that says, "I'm paraphrasing somewhat here," you know, which is like you know, oh, I bet you know, I bet you're having to push all the men away after you. Chasing after you, May West. She said, no, I would never beat off men, kind of thing. And you could just hear the audience go, you could just hear the audience go, did she? She, she said, you know, unapologetic said it, yeah. So there's no doubt that it, it, from a certain era, you know, her cavalier bravery, you know, in, in the face of public admonishment, you know, it's, it's something I think to be lauded, to be honest with you. One of her stage shows was about the queer drag scene, okay? Really, really ahead of a time in terms of the topics and the social X and the social strata she would put on stage, you know. Really modern in that sense. I get that. Uh, although I don't quite understand. I know this film has a big cult following in the gay community. Like the Golden don't, Girls. Well, let me interrupt, but don't, also, don't forget, you know, the fact she included lots and lots of black actors in her movies. Yeah. Not so much uh, in this one, though, right? No, not in this one. Uh, she had some strange ideas about gay people and black people in her later years, okay? Uh, but, you know, during her youth, most definitely, she was she was vocal about not so much black rights, but about black representation in Hollywood. And although, of course, the black people were playing maid roles, in her movies it was obvious that the maids enjoyed a different relationship with her lead character than maids in other movies, you know, where black maids are f- featured there. You know, they had their own voices and uh, although they were talking that Hollywood black speak from the mid-century, uh, it's obvious that it, what they were saying was more meaningful than the yes ma'am, no ma'ams that you normally get uh, in these, in you know, from movies of that era. Or you might get yes ma'am, no ma'am, but you might get that kind of thing where they're kind of scolding people or just talking very quickly kind of thing. There was none of that. They were having real conversations. So in that sense, I think she did manage to portray parts of the world that didn't have a voice in Hollywood. And I think that's to be praised, I think. 
Well, you talk with insight about Mae West uh, and appreciating her respectfully. But look, it seems to me that when a queen of this level yes. is reaching these ages, what she's she swarmed doing, by her worker bees and, and drowned in heat. Yes, I know. She should have jumped out of a helicopter with a, an international <laughs> agent on a parachute or had tea with Paddington Bear. That's the appropriate way to go out, isn't it? Yeah. Hey. Um, let's score it then, Paul. How about did it? we say what happened in the end? Oh, we did, yeah. She, uh, she goes you, to a boat. What you didn't say is that Timothy ran away and she went to find him. True. Timothy wasn't expecting her. She sneaked into his rooms a bit. I mean, he divorced her or separated her from her. So it's kind of weird, yeah. Okay, but all kinds of nonsense going on here. Uh, we're obviously going to score you very differentially here. Uh, I mean, maybe next week we're going to be looking at some other psycho biddy horror. My question is, was this psycho biddy horror for you? Was it horrific or not? It was. In a way, the two films that we've done this week and next week are of a piece, aren't they? Yeah. I hadn't considered that strange link. Okay, let's head out. I, I think, which is obviously going to be your low score here. Let's head out with plot. Might not be your lowest. It's going to be one of your lowest. I think. What do you think about the plot? Rich? What plot? I don't, it doesn't make the slightest. <laughs> it's bit of sense, it, does it? It's high school pantomime, isn't it? You know, the MacGuffin, that stupid cassette, the late addition of characters, as I've forgotten about. You know, uh, I don't know the, the gangster guy that turned up, and somebody else turned up. It was silly, wasn't it? I think there were two gangsters, but I wouldn't swear to that. I have to score the plot down, but I'm not seeing... I'm, I'm going to write it and see if it's lower than your score. Go on, Three. Rich. Can you score the plot? Oh, I scored it two. You know, pretty terrible, the plot. Okay. Why am I scoring it higher? Why is it a three? It's not a three, Richard. How is that plot a three? There are some uh, good things, like dancing Labradors. You know, that's a good thing about the movie. I didn't, dancing, I didn't, I dancing, don't Labrador, the dancing Labrador. You know, choreographed to Esther Williams' level of sophistication, you know, I mean, fucking wonderful. That's a really good thing. And you can see why it's got a gay following because of that. You know, because they were all in life. I think Labradors were there with livery suitcases, for crying out loud. You know what I mean? It's like. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I also don't get why the gay community are hot on the Golden Girls either. I don't understand it. You don't get that? I don't get it. What, why? Well, I mean, so, you don't get it. There's no explaining it, is there? I mean, look, I'm, I, you know, I'm holding an olive branch out. Just, you know, give, you know, give me something. <laughs> look, okay, let's move on to the acting, Richard. Okay, oh God, right. What Did you get Liberace? Do you understand Liberace? Liberace, remember Liberace, the guy with the rings? He used to play the piano. Did you get him? Just, you understand why people might like him? He's kind of camp and vulgar, but that's all part of the agenda. show. Yeah, yeah. It's all part of the show. You know that big. Glitzy showiness kind of thing. Yeah, okay. you get drag, you get drag queens, don't you? Not totally, a bit. Uh, I understand them a bit, but not totally. The, so okay. the vampishness isn't entirely well. It's not serious, but at the same time, it's not entirely frivolous kind of thing. Yeah, it, it it's uncomfortable. It occupies a, a weird liminal space, doesn't it? Mm. Anyway, acting. Look. Thank you for that. Yeah, acting. Go on. Look, I mean, it's got some very big names in it. <laughs> <laughs> None of whom are actors. Well, Tony is. Tony Curtis, you know. Tony Curtis. It's a Timothy terrible Dalton. job here. Timothy Dalton. He... Timothy, I, yeah. Timothy is handsome, it has to be said. I mean... Yeah, but being handsome isn't acting, is it? Look... No. I, it, it's poorly directed, this film. But yeah. God knows what he was working with, poor guy. Well, I mean, Ken never made it big again, did he? He never made it big after Chitty Chitty Bang Bang anyway. I don't, I don't, I don't think. think so. Did, uh, for acting, Go it's got to be a four, hasn't it? 
Wow. Okay, you're being generous here. I would score it a three for the acting, without a doubt. Okay. <laughs> it's atrocious. I mean, I would say Alice Cooper puts on the best performance, and that's saying something. Yeah, he does, because you don't know who he the does. fuck he is. <laughs> he, he comes across as, like, you know, this waiter who's in a musical, and he's singing a song at a piano. You know, fair play, you know. Does what it says on the tin. Okay, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm kind of... I don't know if you've got any ideas for categories... But, you know, I think we have to say glamour and glitz, dynasty factor. Awful. Because the hotel... Oh, come off it! The hotel has green painted walls. It looks looks like no hotel you've ever been in. Okay, yeah, so Mae West wears a few dresses. Yeah. That's about it. Okay, so they have the household cavalry in front of a Rolls Royce. Yeah. And the glass piano. Glass piano? It's a three. Dancing dogs, choreographed dogs... To the level of synchronised swimmers. I, I, I kind of like the ridiculously shabby glamour here. It's, it's very much like an American woman's idea of what... Yes. I loved it. It's like, you know, when when, when lower middle class and working class British holidaymakers went to turn us to that sort of mid, uh, medieval banquet kind of thing. It's that level of naff, isn't it? Mm. And I, it's glorious. Uh, so it's not—it's not a particularly sincere score I give for this, but I'm going to have to score it seven for glamour. It's a musical, so we've got to score the soundtrack. Finally, as a musical, uh, you know, as a piece of what we'd say light entertainment for its light entertainment and musical value, how would you score it? It's absolutely terrible. That's the long and short of it. <laughs> It is fairly terrible, yeah. But what score are you going to give it, Rich? More important. But th- th- there's no memorable songs in it except for Hooray for Hollywood. And I'm not even sure that's it's not original to this, is it? Oh, it's not original, no. Is that where this came from? No. No, no. They paid for the rights and they sung it. I mean, Love Will Keep Us Together by Neil Sedaka, performed by Mae West and Timothy Dalton. Incredible, yeah. This is the other thing to say. Mae does attempt to sing. <laughs> and it cannot be described as singing in her 84 or 85-year-old voice. It's kind of like uh, a monotone croak. <laughs> uh, and and she has, obviously, she has trouble hearing the rhythm and producing the rhythm. So it's just incredible that they've let her sing. I think she's almost singing live on, on set kind of thing. You know, I mean, it's weird. So, musical score, Richard? A three. I'm going to give it a six. Okay. Overall, can I recommend that anyone watch this? Yeah, for laughs, are you? It is a painful watch. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, look, okay. Oh. Is it a get drunk and have fun and, and watch this movie? And not pay too it's much attention. It's a riot! Attention. Yeah, it's a five then, isn't it? Oh, Overall. that's a real upscore. Okay. Uh, I can't recommend you go and watch it, seriously. I can recommend you get some beers and have some fun with some, some mates. It is uproarious, okay? Uh, in terms of gay campery, it's delightful. Uh, for all those reasons, I have to score it a 5.5, Richard, and say, go watch it, given those caveats. I mean, for me, the musical energy is wonderful. It, it does, although there aren't many songs, it has that weird kind of choreographed... I'm going to talk to the audience, then turn around and start singing in that kind of tone. It has those elements of sort of musical motif that fit into a musical. That kind of insane energy, you know. It's like someone has described a musical to someone who'd never seen one. Yeah. Down a telephone. No, but I like the fact it's all gone wrong, you know. (laughs) So a movie gone wrong, if you like movies going wrong, then go see it. Interestingly, it did have a budget of 10 million. Do you know how much it brought in the box office, Richard? One million. 
less than $50,000. One <laughs> of the ultimate, <laughs> ultimate stinkers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because oh. we talked, like, what, what movie did we talk about last like, a couple of weeks ago that brought in maybe a thousand times its budget? One that we've just uh, reviewed. One Cut really of the really Dead. One cut the yeah, dead. One Cut of the Dead. You know, almost a thousand times its budget. This actually returned about 200th of its budget. So almost the other way around. Incredible. Yeah. Nice work. So it was a it. swan song. It was an exit. It was a goodbye from May. Okay. How she got the finance or how she got people to stump up for this, I don't know. Whoever thought people were going to watch this, I don't know. And that to me is more interesting than the movie itself. Because somebody paid 10 million. To have she didn't pay 10 million. It wasn't a vanity project in that sense. She didn't pay. She got paid to do this. Really. Sure, it was a studio movie, presumably, was it? Wow. Crazy. Well, it seems like we're talked out about this. Okay. We've tipped our hand as well that we've already chosen next week's movie. We have already chosen, yeah. It's another movie with the, with the letter X in it. Just X and no but other But no other letters, yeah. No false capitalization, no swiggy little cedillas on top of it. From 2022, right, bang up today, from 44 years ago, now to just released, it is X. Yeah. It's a movie about... Psycho biddies. A porn shoot going terribly oh, oh, wrong. Okay. okay. For me, the focus was it's more about scary old women. So For me, the focus was more about the porn shoot. And that too, actually, once we got into it, yeah. So, uh, so this one we do see people having sex. So if we do, yeah. Rare generational change, days. yeah, yeah. Generational change, you know. When May was making that movie, X-rated movies were very underground still, weren't they? But emerging, you know, through the cracks, if you like. Um, and now, of course, <laughs> so I think she would say. <laughs> now, of course, we don't even watch them anymore, do we? You know, I mean, it's like so. No, you, you so, watch yeah, the edited um, highlights on... Uh, <laughs> with Fast Forward, yeah, okay. Porn so up. this is 2022, looking back to the 70s now, okay, and our perspective on the sex, you know, a distance perspective on those times and low-budget uh, movie filmmakers who did all this kind of X-rated stuff, uh, all thrown into a psycho-biddy horror setting, okay? So lots of Kate Mix in the Kate Mix. Until then... Thank you for listening. Join us for episode 14. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See you on the next one.